Janina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? I am all right. How are you doing? I'm better, thank you. I no longer sound truly disgusting. And... <laughs> we do try to aim for not truly disgusting sounds for the most part yeah. on, on this podcast. I have once um, turned off a podcast that, that sounded really interesting just because the presenter had wet mouth sounds that I couldn't oh. listen to at all. Um, yeah, that's understandable. And it was truly disgusting to me. So, But I was just full of snot and sounded just grotesque. So. <laughs> Uh, uh, but I'm better now and I'm ready to talk about some Malta excellent yeah tiny bizarre island yeah not well, my um... words the words of Alastair Williams <laughs> we should uh, we should talk about who we are I guess oh yeah that thing yeah um, we're history is sexy I am Dr Emma Southern and historian uh, you are Janina Mathewson a writer podcaster extraordinaire mm. um and between us, we are telling people how complicated and interesting and sexy history is. Except yeah. military history, which is boring. It's really boring. <laughs> I yeah, can we deal. I can. We were tricked into doing military history. The thing is, I can deal with like the surroundings of military history. You know, what causes a war and what impact does it have, and all of that. But when it comes to actually talking about battles and sieges, it's like how. <laughs> I can watch a sport and enjoy watching a sport, but if people start talking about like player stats and play <laughs> tactics, then yeah. it's like um, static to my brain. And the same. Yeah, and this feels similar insane. to me. Um, I'm interested in the stories and the kind of cultural impact of battles and things, but um, a lot of uh, a lot of the research for this was skimming very detailed descriptions of sieges and battles and naval battles, um, yeah. which people like to write a lot about. In fact, the new Max Hastings book um, is entirely about a World War Two battle for Malta, um, and it is very long. Uh, and just I, I mean if it's your bag then I'm glad somebody is out there doing it but also I just yeah, I don't want to I don't want to yuck anyone's yum but I just yeah I can't unless sharp is involved in which case I'm fine with it <laughs> for some reason if Bernard Cornwell writes a really good battle actually um everything I know about the Napoleonic Wars as I've said many times before comes from <laughs> Bernard Cornwell because he writes a battle that I can understand and they yeah. all have sharp in the middle mm. um and I understand their impact on sharp uh, <laughs> <laughs> well that's something it is. Um, so if he wrote some books about um, naval sieges, then I'd be into it. But thankfully, um, Malta does have a history before it became one of the most besieged places I've ever experienced. Yeah, and at least one of the sieges is a little bit fun. So that's, <laughs> that's good. I, I look forward to that one. <laughs> um, but uh, So yeah, this question came from um, Alastair Williams. Um, he said the tiny bizarre island of Malta has had a huge effect on history discuss um, and I feel like the real answer to this question is more that history has had a huge effect on Malta uh, because yeah. it just seems to be a place that everybody fought over for a very long time because it's this convenient little like island plopped between Europe and Africa so it's involved in all sorts of desirable shipping routes and everyone yeah. wants a piece basically 
So for those of you who don't know where Malta is, it is a little island. It's actually a couple of islands, um, but the main ones are Malta and Gozo, uh, and they are just off of the southwest coast of Italy. They're basically just under the, like, the toe of the boot. Yeah, so they are just in the gap between um, the Tyrian Sea and uh, the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, and therefore they are right bang smack in the middle of that big stretch of sea between Gibraltar and um, Egypt. Yeah. So they are um, a point that can kind of control traffic um, through the Mediterranean, but they are also, it also is a nice little landing point if you want to invade Italy or Spain. Um, because you're right there with Sicily and Sicily has massive strategic importance. So it is a very important little place. Um, and as a result, people fought over it for like a thousand years. Um, (laughs) and it ended up having like the language is Maltese, which is 10th century Arabic in Latin letters with massive amounts of influence from Italian, Spanish and French. Hmm. Um, so it's the only Semitic language because it is basically at its root an Arab. It's an Arabic form of Arabic. Yeah. But it's the only one that's written in the Latin alphabet, which means it looks very strange. Um, and it has lots of characters which are fairly unique. Um, and it has all of these kind of loan words and loan structures from Italian, French, and Spanish. Yeah. Um, and English as well because it was. British for a long time so uh, it's a complicated place Um, a lot has has happened there a lot has happened there it's best period I decided um, was it's prehistoric period (laughs) the Um, time you really wanted to live there was prehistory (laughs) I feel like it probably was um, because because almost no one seemed to be invading it well no one had navies Um, so which is a good start <laughs> um and it was apparently a very lush place now when you read anything from like the 16th century onwards when they start describing Malta they're like it's a shit rock um <laughs> uh in fact from like the 12th century onwards because when they give it to the knights of Malta the knights of Malta literally say this is a shit rock why are you giving us this um <laughs> and but previously um in the pre-modern world it was um a lush and beautiful place uh and was full of animals including pygmy hippos um and like loads and loads of animal bones and stuff has been found and it was a great place for farming um and was very fertile and delightful and a lot of books say that people arrived there like seven thousand years ago but the oldest remains have now been dated to fifteen thousand years bce so seventeen thousand years ago wow. um and people rolled up in malta and were like this is pretty great uh and they probably came from sicily because you can see it <laughs> uh, from sicily <laughs> Uh, but they rolled up there and they were living what sounds like a pretty great life um, <laughs> for a very long time. And then in 3,600 BCE, so 5,000, 5,500 years ago, um, they started building massive, weird, megalithic temples. Mm-hmm. 
which still exist and are for a long time they were thought to be the oldest um neolithic buildings in the entire world they've now been topped by gobleki tepe in uh turkey which mm-hmm. is five thousand years older than them that's um, a pretty decisive victory it is a pretty decisive victory uh so kind of crushed there but for a while they were they were dated as the oldest because they're um a thousand years older than the Great Pyramids and 1,005 years older than Stonehenge and older than basically anything that anyone had found in the 90s. Mm. Um, and they are all over the islands. They are these... And they are clover-shaped. Yeah. Um, like, they're in circles and then they have kind of, um, like, apses coming off of them. So they look like four-leaf, three-leaf clovers. It's, um, it's a pretty cool design for a building. It gives you like seclusion is. from each of the wee areas, you know? Yeah. It's nice. Um, and there are, so the oldest are called Gangangia um, on Gozo. And there are two temples in an unfinished third in a kind of temple complex shaped like clover leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have all of these altars inside of them and they're decorated with carvings and they're very beautiful um and then there are five other very very ancient temple complexes dotted across the islands um which are all unesco world heritage sites which are taha grat skorba haga kim menandra and taxian don't know about the pronunciation of any of those but i've done my best um and they're all like little temple complexes and they change over time and they were built over this thousand year period um and then on top of those six which are the like the biggest ones basically there are 15 other sites of megalithic uh, buildings made out of light just massive chunks of limestone basically mm-hmm. um with rubble holding them together so they are just huge um, like 20 meter high chunks of limestone and then create this circular effect and then they have like dome they go up and are domed over um so they are very impressive and very cool and then just to make things extra extra fun um <laughs> because people love uh, this kind of thing they are absolutely filled with uh, large statues of and small statues and figurines um, and carvings of um what were have regularly been identified as women um, mm-hmm. because they are very fat um and they have in that you know like the venus of what's it called like yeah. those kind of all of those neolithic things they're all kind of very soft round um figures with lots of um like fat basically on their hips and on their butts um and on their arms um they so they're often seen as women some of them definitely do have boobs um mm-hmm. and fannies which is a the giveaway that is a um, pretty solid giveaway most of the time <laughs> um not all the time but most of the time some of them are very kind of tiny some of them are lovely there's this one called the sleeping lady um, from House of Lenny. If you scroll right down to the bottom of the thing, Janina, I put a little picture of one in there for you so you can Ooh. see it. Oh. oh, yeah, that's great. That's so Let's cool. See. And it has a little nose and they have like basically mass, like they're big, big butted people. Great. Um, and 
So this has given rise to this idea in the modern world that there was a mother goddess cult um, (laughs) and that it was a utopian feminist matriarchal society um, that worshipped... you weren't lying. Prehistoric Malta was the best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That uh, worshipped these female fertility goddesses and that were very interested in uh, being egalitarian and earth-focused and rah, rah, rah. And there is a lot of tourism now based on that. Like, Americans love it. They love to go and be earth women. Mm-hmm. And a lot... I read this whole thing about... Um, this article about the tourism industry, basically, and how they make so much money off of um, American tour groups going there and, like, um, getting in touch with their feminine whatever. <laughs> um, and then in the background, there's archaeologists going, actually, we don't think they're women. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking archaeologists ruining everyone's fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the because if you look, like some of them definitely have fannies, but if you look at the one I put in there, like it doesn't have boobs. It's got quite a flat chest. Well, you know. Um, and it is, they are basically kind of agendered. Yeah. They're not, don't really have anything that sexes them. Essentially, they're just people with big butts. I mean, I am pro people with big butts of all genders, so that's fine yeah, with me. Yeah, <laughs> all genders with big butts. Um, there's also tons of what archaeologists call phallic symbols mm-hmm. um, uh, and also tons of little animals um, which d- tend to get downplayed by the people who want it to be a kind of mother cult, but whatever. <laughs> Let people have their but- mother cults. Yeah, I know they can. I mean, they've got it. They can do what they like with it. And the people of Malta. So this article was from the '90s. So I can't say what people think now. Quite a long time after that. But the people of Malta, um, in the article, were. I mean, they were, they had this American woman coming up and asking them what they thought of it all, and they were just like, yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, this, we don't really feel like this has anything to do with us. Um, there is a kind of local tradition that the temples are rounded because they are supposed to represent a female body. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a local myth that um, the Gajantia complex was built by a giant called Sansuna who carried the stones by herself and ate only broad beans and honey. <laughs> I mean, that's a great myth. I buy it. I mean, I've seen nothing to dispute it. No. Um, uh, But yeah, and there's also around all of these temples what are called the cart tracks, which are these super deep tracks, basically, where they were obviously created when they were dragging the stone up Mm. to the... um, But they're still there, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Then I found an article called uh, The Death Cult of Prehistoric Malta, which I got very excited about. I know, you messaged me and I got very, very excited too. And now I think you're going to pull the rug out from (sighs) under under me. I am, because it turns out that archaeologists are liars and (laughs) tricksters. And they do clickbait with the best of them. They do. Um, So basically the article was written by the directors of the digs that were taking place in the 1990s, which is when they really got into it. So a lot of this stuff was uncovered um, in the late 19th, early 20th century. So Mm -hmm. there's this thing called the Hypergeum, um, which I'm, I'm pretty sure this... that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, but I would love it if it did. <laughs> doesn't, unfortunately. <laughs> it is a massive underground burial complex. 
works um, from about 3,300-ish BC is when it was first built and then it was used for like a thousand years. Um, and it was discovered in 1902 when they were trying to build a new apartment complex and broke through the roof of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the workers first were like, oh, this is effort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So they considered not telling anyone about it. And then they were like, oh, there seems to be quite a lot of stuff in there. Uh, because it turned out that there was at least 7,000 people buried in there. Woof. Uh, with all of the stuff that you put into a burial. So lots of jewellery, um, bone jewellery, shell jewellery, little figurines, mm. um, axes, beads, all kinds of stuff. Obsidian blades, which I just like to say because I love the word obsidian. Obsidian is a uh, really good word. I always like it when there's an obsidian weapon and something. It's the one fantasy trope that I always, always gets me. I don't know why I find the concept of obsidian so funny. I, I just yeah. It's just so overblown. It yeah. just it's such a dramatic word. And because you know <laughs> it's that obsidian is black, it just seems very badass. Um a very, very long time ago, this is a complete divergence, but um when I worked first worked for Waterstones, um, after I'd finished my undergraduate degree mm-hmm. and I worked there and it was at the height of the um dark fantasy genre. Yes. When, Waterstones had a dark fantasy and it was like fantasy romance stuff like when um not twilight uh true blood that Mm -hmm. kind of thing was really at its height and there was a book that was part of a series that was called obsidian butterfly (laughs) Um, and i have no idea what the book was about but i remember shelving it and just realized this is the funniest name for a book i've ever seen in my life yeah that's incredible (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, so a lot of it was um, uncovered around about that time, and it was led by a guy with the fantastic name of Sir Themistocles Zamet. <laughs> That's I want a book about him just because of his name. He deserves a book, I suspect, because he led one of those careers you can't really have anymore, whereby he trained as a medical doctor and was a medical doctor, and then he became a bacteriologist mm-hmm. um, and was given the a knighthood because he discovered that um people were getting um were getting fevers and that a thing called udder disease was um related to bacteria in goat's milk where blood was getting into the goat's milk and then they were drinking the goat's milk Um, so he did that then he became a professor of chemistry Mm-hmm. And then he um, took a sideline in writing histories, which took him, which he wrote a lot of, um, which then took him into archaeology, and he became the director of Maltese archaeology. He started the first museum, um, and basically dominated the whole of Maltese archaeology for about twenty years. Uh, and discovered everything. Pretty varied career. Yeah. Um, so he's just like one of these people who did everything and kind of excelled at it. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, so he did a lot of it and he stopped people from stealing stuff as much as he possibly could. Um, <laughs> uh, and so a lot of this stuff was excavated then, but badly. Uh, and then in the 90s, they started doing big um, Italian and British sponsored excavations using more modern methods. Um, and so the Death Cult article was written by the directors of those 90s digs. What they proposed in this kind of like very boring fashion is that over the... Uh, kind of thousands of years of uh, agriculture in Malta, what they had experienced was massive soil erosion Mm -hmm. and a decline in agricultural production, which is probably true because Neolithic agricultural um, 
method mostly just destroyed the soil mm. um and they thus developed an obsession this is their word an obsession with facility and successful propagation which they focused on fat people animals and willies um that's not their words that's my words <laughs> Uh, on basically doing loads of drawings of fat people, animals and willies. Um, And they became quite debilitatingly fixated (laughs) on art and sculpture and competition between communities focused on temple building, um, which then completely destroyed their ability to actually do anything agricultural. uh, And then they all died, Um, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure that they probably didn't just all die because it took fully... Like they by two thousand BCE, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that we see in the temples has died out, and they've started cremating people. Uh, but that is a one thousand six hundred year period, yeah. um, which is a really long time. It did make me wonder, like, you're like, have archaeologists ever met a person? <laughs> I think. Do they read novels? Do they, or do they only talk to other archaeologists? And then they're all like, yeah, no, this is a thousand years is a reasonable time to to talk about human existence it's, um, it, it does flatten your perspective and i know that no one has any real sense of time right now because we're all been we've all been you know quarantine dazzled but like when you are looking at long like more than a thousand years ago it does all kind of flatten out it is like you have to actively remind yourself no this was over an extraordinarily long period of time that i cannot even really comprehend yeah, because otherwise this is a problem with archaeologists is that they um, they do talk about things in in just such ridiculous amounts of time. Yeah, um, the book on Neanderthals, the Becky Rag Sykes book, which is really good. Um, she talks about things in like uh, ten thousand year chunks <laughs> <laughs> because that's basically the only way that you can talk about Neanderthals. But it's still a bit like. <laughs> <laughs> It's very broad. It's a very broad view. Sure, just ten thousand years, barely a thing. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so they had that is a good one thousand five hundred year period um, of um, building stuff and making stuff and hanging out and burying people and apparently having lots and lots of time to spend on building um, fun things and possibly having mother cults, um, but at the very least having willy cults. Um, yeah. Which is quite good fun. Uh, And then along come, about a thousand years after that, the Phoenicians, um, who no one talks about very much uh, (laughs) for some reason, although the Phoenicians are very cool. Um, They are an ancient civilization from the kind of Lebanon region who, after the Bronze Age collapse and the Sea Peoples kind of emerged out of that to dominate the Mediterranean for Mm. a thousand years. Um, and built loads and loads of cities, everything from Tripoli and Sidon all the way up to Marseille, which was originally founded as a Phoenician city. That's, um, that's a lot of things. Uh, so what happens is Phoenicia kind of takes over the eastern Mediterranean and like that North African coast mm-hmm. all the way up to France, um, up to Marseille anyway. Um, like they all along there is Phoenician. Um, and they uh, that includes taking Malta, um, mm-hmm. not in a CG way, as far as we can tell, um, but in a Phoenician objects and um, Phoenician writing and um, Phoenician stuff starts turning up mm-hmm. on 
in Maltese archaeology. Um, and Which might have they just been to be... because they started trading. Yeah, they basically just showed up and were like, hello, uh, we've got all this stuff, do you want some? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so they don't seem to like take it over in any kind of way. But also it's one of those situations where they don't really have a like, centrally controlled empire necessarily, mm. but they create... Um, they create colonies so they'll put they'll like plant people and that will be a trading base there so that's what they all are um and one of these is a huge temple um to melkart who is a a phoenician hero um and at this temple a huge candelabra made of marble (laughs) um was found described inscribed with to Melkart, our lord of the city of Tyre. This vow is dedicated by Abdesir and his brother Orsizamar, both sons of Orsizamar, son of Abdesir. So they also, like the Romans, only have two names that they share. Mm-hmm. Um, hear them and bless them, um, which is great. But this was written in Greek and in Phoenician um, and was the key, like the Rosetta Stone to deciphering Phoenician oh, as wow. a language. That's very um, cool. Yeah, so without Malta, we would not be able to understand um, Phoenician. So that's quite good because Phoenician is all over the show and is the basis of the Greek language um, and all of the languages which come from that. So what's happening is Phoenicia is happily colonising their way along North Africa and Spain up to Marseille and they take Malta and Goza and the other islands and they take South and Eastern Italy, (laughs) uh, Italy, Sicily, sorry, Meanwhile, the Greeks, um, which is Athenians and all the other Greek city-states, are pootling their way along um, the kind of Western Mediterranean up that top bit, and they're coming along Greece, and then they're coming up Italy, um, and they are pootling their way up past north and western Sicily. So (laughs) Sicily is kind of being separated between the two. um, And all of a sudden, Malta is this very important point um, between the two of them and becomes this kind of massive melting pot along with Sicily of uh, Greek culture and Phoenician culture um, and everybody seemingly getting along fairly well. Um, And when they fight, it seems that Malta is a place where they can go where there's not going to be battles, but they're battling constantly. Um, But but Malta seems to be fairly chill. The island of taking a breather, exactly. Um, then this is the most fun bit of this period, um, which is, uh, that we get two mentions of what people think is Malta in Greek literature. Um, one is a guy called Lycophron who claims that a bunch of soldiers returned there after the Trojan War, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people have taken to mean that there was a Greek colony on Malta as well. Mm-hmm. Though there's no actual real evidence of a colony. There's a bunch of Greek stuff, yeah. but not like buildings or anything. Um, and then in kind of ancient authors um, and then coming into the kind of Grand Tour period, people decided that Malta was the island of Ogigia, uh, otherwise known as Calypso's Island in the Odyssey. Oh, um, so at the start of the Odyssey, when um, Odysseus is being he- has been held hostage by Calypso for seven years, yeah, um, and he's just I don't know crying on the beach all the time because <laughs> he is so bewitched by her, and he's very sad about it, but also 
um, he's making no efforts to leave, uh, <laughs> that this is um, this is in fact Malta or Gozo, but one of the two. Hmm. Um, I mean, this it does... seems like a nice place to hang out for 10 years before you get home to your wife. Yeah. Well, the descriptions of Calypso's island are uh, like, there's a bit where Hermes goes and visits and he's like, oh my God, it's amazing. Like there's all these beautiful, like there's these caves and um, it's beautiful mm. trees and it's this lush, gorgeous place. And there's everywhere they look, there's vines hanging with grapes and um, it's just this beautiful, uh, like fertile, lush space, which so Homer says will like lift the heart of any god and everyone would want to sit and look at it, which is mm-hmm. not a lot like... Um, what the Knights of Malta say when they're offered it, which is, what is this shit rock? Uh, which, um, um, but it's Who quite sweet. Who are you going to believe, the Knights of Malta or Hermes, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and it is, uh, so this, uh, like, 17th century, um, people really get into the idea that Malta is a, um, is a space that in within the Odyssey. Um, mm. And that it is a, a kind of mythical place. Um, and I imagine, I mean, looking at pictures of it, it looks very beautiful. And I would quite like to go there. But um, lush, beautiful, uh, <laughs> 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 and, and not words that you would necessarily describe. Um, anyway, so that's all cool. It's having a lovely time being Phoenician. Then it, um, Phoenicia kind of declines as all empires do. This is really a story of empires rising and then declining. Mm-hmm. Um, they hit Malta and then immediately fall over, as far <laughs> as I can tell. Um, because actually, thinking about it, uh, a lot of places get to Malta and then like. Eh. Um, except the Romans, um, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah. Uh, the British so also did all right. So The British also did all right, but yeah. the Romans did the best because they always do. <laughs> uh, um, so Phoenicia is happily colonising places. Greece is happily colonising places. Um, Phoenicia as a space kind of declines largely because of the rise of Babylon, which um, kind of takes out its eastern edge and then it doesn't have the uh, ability to hold on to the western edge quite so much but Carthage which is in Tunisia um, rises in its place in this area of the Mediterranean and um, starts defending Phoenician interests and then their own interests and then gets interested in taking Sicily mm-hmm. um, and they, Carthage takes over uh, Malta in 480 um, and then starts moving into Sicily as a space for that and starts kind of rattling its swords mm-hmm. um, and it becomes a very Punic um, place uh, there's a lot of building there there's rumours that Hannibal was born there um, mm-hmm. I say rumours, I mean rumours amongst people in Malta as well as <laughs> everyone um, likes to claim someone for themselves you know, yeah, and... definitely his dad visited so that's nice um, there's like a few mentions of it in Roman literature and in Hellenistic literature and they both describe it as a very rich um, very luxurious place which is a Punic or Phoenician um, colony mm. so um, Diodorus Siculus who's writing in the first century BCE um, describes it as um 
being full of artisans skilled in every manner of craft most important being those who weave linen which is remarkably sheer and soft and the dwellings of the island are worthy of note being ambitiously constructed with cornices and finished in stucco um so it is this real trading space and it becomes very very famous for its unique honey because it has unique bees Ooh, what is special uh, about its bees so the phoenicians brought bees there um and then those bees became specialized to the environment so they are now they become came speciated basically they became <laughs> their own little species of bee um and there is a huge amount of um thyme it's like spicy honey basically um and it's still quite famous but in the greek and roman worlds it was a really famous um it it was it's called melita um by the greeks and romans melite uh, and that which means kind of honey sweet honey Mm um so they're chilling being very rich and happy um, and then what happens is that some Greeks are trying to punch Carthage because um, they're fighting over Sicily. Yeah. Uh, and like down, <laughs> down south, southern Italy is very Greek dominated. Um, and Rome is expanding heavily into Italy at the time. So this is 264 BCE. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't want Carthage on the mainland because they want the mainland. So they are invited to come and help punch some Carthaginians. And they say, okay. Um, and they absolutely obliterate Carthage in um, southern Italy. And then they go to sicily and obliterate the carthaginians there as well and push them right out um and force them into malta where they're just kind of huddling in malta um carthaginians think that they are safe there because carthage has an ancient and very strong navy and Mm -hmm. has been dominating naval warfare for hundreds of years and rome has never really seen a boat (laughs) um because Rome has been interested only in land warfare and is very, very good at land warfare, but has never had anything to do with naval warfare. So they think that they are secure on Malta and that they will be fine. Um, because the only way you can really attack Malta is by going into the harbours. Mm. Um, and then you can be bombarded, so you need... like. Both. Unfortunately, they, as everyone did, underestimated the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> and the Romans were never happy when they knew there was an enemy that they could be punching in the face um, (laughs) and they were not punching them in the face. (laughs) So they just built themselves a navy. Sure. um, And they they found a Carthaginian wreck and copied it and then added fucking massive spikes to the front. (laughs) That is pretty impressive. (laughs) (laughs) And what those spikes allowed them to do is... um, kind of jam into the Carthaginian boats um, and then they could kind of well no not even that that would cling like hold the two boats together and then they could board the boats and it could be basically land warfare and then sneaky Romans (laughs) they're so sneaky the wee (laughs) bastards Uh, (laughs) and then they started just punching the shit out of the Carthaginians at sea as well And less than 10 years after entering a war that was technically nothing to do with them and they were invited as mercenaries, they had taken Sicily, uh, taken Malta and taken most of Southern and pushed the Carthaginians back. Um, They then kind of continued to fight for ages 
um, and this was became the first Punic War, um, and they called it a draw after a while because the Romans and the Carthaginians kind of came to an impasse. <laughs> Two eighteen BCE, um, Hannibal restarts the war with Rome, thinking that he can win. Yeah. Um, by fucking with the Romans. Romans don't like it. Um, <laughs> and they immediately storm into Malta and take it. Um, and then there's a 17-year war, which is of no real interest. But um, the Malta went really hard for the Romans. Uh, <laughs> like, the Maltese people just apparently were fed up with the hundreds of years of Phoenician and Carthaginian rule. So they went hard for the Romans. And as a result, at the end of the war, they were granted um, a kind of limited autonomous government under the province of Sicily. Mm-hmm. Um, and there they kind of chill for the entirety of the Roman emperor. Um, there's a couple of times when they appear. In 70 BCE, um, there's a very famous trial of a guy called Verres, who was a governor of Sicily. Mm-hmm. Um, and was corrupt even for Raymond. <laughs> that um, is saying something. And the Raymond seemed to were very open in the fact that they considered their role in governing places to be to strip those places of everything that they could. Um, mm-hmm. But as a general rule, you only stripped it of stuff that um, kind of very British Empire way, stuff that already was there. Uh, sure. not stuff that was being currently produced um, so they uh, he absolutely stripped uh, various, he looted loads of cloth of linen and honey um, and he also stole a load of um, statues from temples which were so they reused all of the temples that were already there and mm-hmm. rededicated them and he stole a load of statues from the temples um, he also uh, tried to steal a woman and did a bunch of other stuff um and all of that meant he was a bad dude all of that meant that cicero wrote a big long speech against him um (laughs) and it's great when cicero writes a big long speech about someone um so that's its first mention and then it's the only kind of second mention that it gets is in 60 ce saint paul um on his way to being tried in rome Mm -hmm. uh from jerusalem gets shipwrecked in malta uh where he um He's stuck spending the winter, uh, during which time he uh, is bitten by a snake and survives it. Um, miraculously, everybody is waiting for there to be some impact and it doesn't because the he is immune. Uh, then he cures, like, they call him the island chief, but it's like whoever they have elected to be their um, autonomous representative. Mm-hmm. Um, the island chief's father has dysentery, uh, so Paul cures him. Sure. And then they keep, like in the life of Brian, they keep bringing their sick to him. Um, and he spends three months curing people. <laughs> uh, and uh, as a result, Malta um, boasts the only Latin church founded by Paul. So that's quite good. Um, and then that's basically all we know about what was going on. It seems to have been very rich and very happy. And um, they minted their own coins, which have punic writing and latin writing mm-hmm. um they uh seem to have just had a good time under the romans as a general um no one knows what happens to it really when the western empire collapsed and no there's lots of arguments about whether the visigoths or the vandals took control of it but um who knows neither of them left that much of a mark whichever one it was um but then it's taken again it's taken 
for the Byzantines mm-hmm. um, under Justinian, and then it is just Byzantine for a little while. And this is where the joy of it just going backwards and forwards between various people begins. <laughs> Um, yeah, this was when everyone starts to just want. I mean, they've been doing it since, like, everybody wants to take it. Um, so it's Roman, then it's Byzantine, then um, the um, Arabic Empire takes it, the Islamic Empire, um, and it becomes part of the Arabic Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, Byzant- so that's 870. 1048, the Byzantines try and take it back. Then 1061... The Normans take it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a fun bit of history. So Normans returning from pilgrimage. So they go from Normandy over to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And then some of them just get confused on the way back. <laughs> and like a lot of people seem to just never make it home. Um, and a bunch of them end up hanging around in southern Italy. Um, I mean, I would just hang around in southern Italy if I were them. It seems lovely. Why not? And they're they're employed as mercenaries, uh, which is grand. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of get a bit uppity about the situation and take over southern Italy. And then they invade Sicily. And then they invade Malta. Um, And this is like the legendary story behind the flag of Malta. Mm -hmm. Is that a guy called Roger, who is a Norman knight. There's a lot of people called Roger (laughs) in this part. So Roger. So Roger, uh-huh. uh, Count Roger, he is, um, <laughs> lands on Malta um, and the Christians of Malta receive him as a Christian conqueror. So this is the full period, which is like the religious wars and um, Christians versus Muslims. And these, that is the only division that matters. Mm. Uh, and so they receive him as a Christian conqueror and immediately say, oh, we will fight with you against the Arabs. Um, I imagine them all just like appearing on the beach. He says, oh, well, how will we tell the difference between your troops and the Arabic troops? Because you'll both be fighting under the Maltese flag. And so the Christians say, well, you give us a flag and that'd be fine. So he tears his own flag in half (laughs) um, and gives it to them and says, there you go, that's your flag. Their flag is half red and half white, which is supposed to represent the kind of torn flag of, like, he tears off a chunk of his flag. Um, Anyway, he takes the island and then uh, allows all of the Arabs to stay for a while and then he just deports them all. Sure. Um, Yeah. I'm reading a book at the moment which is, like, an alternative history of this kind of, of like, well, it's 1300s. And... um, there's a lot of just deporting massive groups of people. <laughs> yeah, people love to do it. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the things that's um, always striking in when you listen to the first season of Rex Factor is just every so often there's a king who just, you know, kicks out all of yeah. the Jews. It's like, ha, that's just, it's, that is a, a massive administrative undertaking, you would think. Just to... Or like the, the plantations of Ireland. Like, oh yeah, we just moved a load of just hundreds of families who just moved them into Ulster. Like, yeah. And all of those people were fine with that, were they? Mm, yeah. Um, probably not. Yeah. Actually. Um, probably, that sounds like a lot, like, this is one of those things where it feels like there was a lot of effort and a lot of, like, weeping and crying and gnashing of teeth. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, so they just deport them all. Sure. Fine. 
And then he decides that he wants to make his own little kingdom. So Sicily and Malta are going to be his little kingdom Mm -hmm. um, called the Kingdom of Sicily. Uh, And he wants it to be an international power. um, And he (laughs) thus calls himself the King of Sicily. um, And then he dies in his... Ambition. (laughs) uh, And he keeps telling people that they're actually very important and good, uh, Mm -hmm. which just draws attention from both the Arabs and the Byzantines and all the European powers. Um, And so it only really lasts for like 50 years Mm -hmm. of quite a lot of people um, just saying that they're the king of Sicily and then immediately dying. But... (laughs) Uh, but the more that they say they're very important um, the more people think that they need to do something about it and they are raided so often that um, they have to form a militia called the Jajema Mm -hmm. which conscripted all men between 16 and 65 who had to guard the shores of Malta um, 24 hours a day scanning the sea for threats Um, and if any threats were spotted they had to light a bonfire which would then prompt everybody to ring their bells which would then have everyone man the defences um, which sounds rubbish it does rubbish no way to it. <laughs> uh, so thankfully that only lasts for a little while and then the last king dies and because European monarchies are gross and incestuous and there's only about 8 people with 12 different names mm. um, it ends up being absorbed into the Holy Roman Empire because like, yeah. the only child left is the Holy Roman Emperor. Sure. Um, and yeah, and so then it is part of the Holy Roman Emperor, which brings us to the Knights of Malta, aka the Sovereign Military Hospitalier Order of St. John of, St. Jeruse- of Jerusalem, Rhodes, and Malta. My mum was in the Order of St. John. I mean, by which I mean that St. John runs the ambulances in New Zealand and she works on an ambulance for a while. Well, there you go. <laughs> oh. My mum was in the St. John's Ambulance, but I'm afraid I'm aware they never gave her a sword. No. Yeah. yeah. Which is disappointing. Anyway, they still exist. Uh, they are have sovereign status in international law, despite having no land. <laughs> uh, and, but they are nonetheless considered to be a sovereign entity. Uh, and they are a permanent observer in the UN General Council. <laughs> uh, they make their own coins, which can't be used for anything, but are quite fancy. Uh, they have their own <laughs> stamps. Nice uh, for a while, they had their own air force, which was one plane. <laughs> I mean, that's more of an air force than I have. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, they had to give it back to the Italians eventually. Mm-hmm. But um, technically, they are still a military organisation. Um, but uh, that do technically still exist and have some members. Um, they have a. They are weird. They are one of these weird <laughs> things that it is that make limited sense (laughs) well it makes sense to have like because one of the primary functions was like here is a place to bring your soldiers and we'll and look after them while they get better i have now that they've been wounded because there was like a channel right but on the way to jerusalem basically because that was all anyone cared about was going to jerusalem and doing a crusade and then there are ports along that route where you could be like here my soldiers are injured fix them yeah me, exactly yeah. that's how they start life um and that is kind of part of what they have still do they're still a humanitarian organization um mm. they started with a hospital in jerusalem and then um kind of tr- became a massive corporation owning hospitals all along that channel mm. that kind of 
pilgrimage channel. Um, and then they started to recruit knights who came to Jerusalem on crusade or on pilgrimage and never went home. Uh, and then they um, became a military order, which is a religious order. Um, but instead of monks who um, have a focus on spiritual and aesthetic practice, mm-hmm. uh, they are um, they take an oath to be holy warriors. So they're paladins. Yes. So they are fighting for the protection of the Holy Land, the protection of the pilgrim routes, so of people travelling along those routes, um, and then they take an oath that they will live and fight for God. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, brilliant, because now they have the hospitals for soldiers and people who are injured and the people causing those injuries. <laughs> Uh, and so they make an absolute killing off of uh, creating their own clients. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, they somehow become just immensely powerful and very, very good at fighting um, and have kind of diplomatic relations as an entity with all of the, these European countries. And so in 1291... They are expelled from Jerusalem by um, Muslim forces during, I don't know, one of the Crusades. Um, Second, maybe. Uh, (laughs) There are so many. Can't keep up with Crusades. There are so many. Um, They just go back and forth. Um, They're expelled from Jerusalem and they flee to Cyprus where they build themselves a fleet and decide to become holy sailors of the Lord. Sure. um, And holy naval officers. So basically Um, they're doing whatever they want, but they're just doing it. In a holy way, just do whatever they want. But they say they're doing it for God, so they can. Um, They then, and that means that nobody can criticize. (laughs) (laughs) Because if they say, oh, the Pope said we can do it, then everyone's like, "Ah, curse you. (laughs) Um, uh, So they then take roads by force, um, which takes four years. So they spend four years fighting um, and take roads and take control of roads and build themselves a hospital um, and then continue fighting. Uh, Turks at sea mm-hmm. until our good old friend Solomon the Magnificent arrives. Excellent. Um, always a nice time when he, he turns up. It's always a good time when he turns up because you know he's going to bring some magnificence and a lot of men and some people are going to get really kicked about. Um, <laughs> and he decides he wants roads. Roads are also quite useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, after lots and lots of fighting, he kicks them out. Sure. Um, they sail around the Mediterranean for a while, the years of homelessness. I read a book that was written by a modern day knight of the <laughs> uh, Knight of Malta, which Excellent. was nice. His name is uh, Marcello Maria Morocco Trishita. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote a book entitled The Knights of Malta, A Legend Towards the Future. A sentence that makes no sense. No. Because they're a uh, legend very much in the past. And it's very much, you know, their version of their history, which is quite useful. Um, so they spend these years of homelessness um, and float about all over the place. Uh, they're basically being annoying uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because there's loads of them um, and they are uh, they're heavily armed um, and they have been fighting for a long time and they just keep bothering the Holy Roman Emperor uh, by turning up places. Um, and eventually he says, look, I... This is Charles V. He says, look, I'll give you Malta um, if 
you basically promise to stay there mm. and that can be your little space and you can do whatever you like there and they're like mm, this is a shit rock uh, <laughs> <laughs> and are heavily unthrilled i'm gonna see if i can find the bit where um he says that he's been given they've been offered malta the first approach disappointed them <laughs> Malta was large, rocky, unfriendly, and could not be compared in any way from roads for its natural beauty or its climate. Uh, <laughs> oh, poor Malta. So they were not thrilled. Yeah. And their first reaction was just like, "We don't, we don't want it. Thank you very much." <laughs> um, but eventually, they take it because it's that or nothing. Um, so they roll up. They are given it on the twenty fourth of March, fifteen thirty, and what's called the Act of Donation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives it to them along with the islands around it um, and says he, they can be the feudal lords of it um, that they are they have power of life and death over everyone there they can make the laws they can do whatever they want um, much one suspects to the surprise and horror of the people who live there yeah I can imagine it's not nice to just who... have your country given to a bunch of knights who don't even like it yeah by a German. Um, <laughs> and so they're just like, hang on, what? Because um, they had been granted... So um, Frederick II, I think it is, um, who is a Holy Roman Emperor, mm-hmm. kind of took a bit of a liking to Malta because he discovered that they had great falcons. Sure. And he was really into falconry. And as a reward for being so good at growing falcons, he gave them... Um, this kind of limited autonomy in which they could elect their own administrators and they could elect um, like representatives who would um, go to, who would represent them to the people who ran the empire. So who called the Consiglio Populari. Mm. So they had been living quite happily for a very long time within at the edge of the Holy Roman Empire, living their little lives yeah. for generations um, with their falcons um, and, <laughs> electing people and having a degree of autonomy that most people do not have and then all of a sudden these very heavily armed knights show up and with a letter saying hello you don't have any power anymore um all of you people who have been living here for generations on these maltese people um we french lads because uh, they're all french for some reason sure. um we french lads have decided that we want it <laughs> And they're like, oh, yeah, well, that's fun. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so they show up, they build themselves a hospital immediately, start marching around, rattling sabres at things, um, until 1565, Suleiman the Magnificent shows up again. Yay! Um, He now wants Italy, having taken almost everywhere else. (laughs) And so he rolls up to Malta and... Uh, there is a four-month siege that I read loads about that was very boring. <laughs> I suspect it was almost as boring for me as it was for them to live it. Yes. Um, At least because, uh, oh. for you it was just boring and for them it was probably boring and also quite frightening. Quite horrible, yeah. yes. Um, four months of misery, thousands of people um, fighting. There's loads of battles uh, that are mostly... Um, they're like fortified forts and um and fortified cities mm. on on Malta that the 
the Ottomans try to bombard <laughs> and then try to invade constantly. So it's just lots of backing and forthing. Eventually, uh, the Ottomans got bored and were horrified at the idea of spending the winter there. Yeah. And so they just left, um, which was taken as a great victory um, as holding off the invading Muslim forces from Europe. Sure. Uh, and so despite the fact that the kings of Europe and the Holy Roman Empire and all the rest of it had done absolutely nothing to help, <laughs> um, they decided to declare it a great victory and just sent loads of money to Malta, which was nice for everyone. So they were like, thank you ones. for doing that. We will buy this victory from you. <laughs> Yeah, they have loads and loads of rewards. Mm. Like, here's a shiny gold plate, um, for which I'm sure everyone who was traumatised by the wars and all the people who were dead were delighted by. Um, It then becomes, like, this massive centre of um, nightly activity, um, uh, whereby it's a focus for people... The knights decide that they want to protect Christian trade at this point, which largely involves enslaving people. <laughs> uh-huh. um, um, so they go around and punch people on the sea, and they're like, are you a Muslim? And they, if they say yes, then they say, right, you're all enslaved now. Um, which makes them very, very rich. It tends to. Slavery is a very good way to um, get very rich, because you're exploiting people with no costs to you. Yeah. So, um, okay, so for this is um, an English tourist called Mr. Bryden went to Malta on holiday Mm -hmm. um, in 1770 and described it as being crowded with well-dressed people who have the appearance of health and affluence. Bread was cheap. Its price was carefully controlled. The streets were swept and policed. Health regulations were far in advance of their day. And the penal code was surprisingly enlightened with almshouses for the aged poor and an orphanage. That's nice. Nice to have an orphanage, I guess. I guess. Yeah. So nobody was dying on the streets of starvation, which is better than most places. Um, And yeah, so um, Malta up until... I'm going to hand over to you to do the Mm. French... Uh, so um the basically is when no one is trying to uh, colonize them or invade them they're having a lovely time it's like rich and happy and prosperous and then every so often like every time someone years, just knocks on the door and is and like i'm here to fuck shit up yeah everyone's like i've come to burn everything down and then you can start yeah, again yeah which it's going to happen again with Napoleon, which is... Napoleon is fun. <laughs> this is the one fun thing that I looked at. Um, I didn't... I haven't... You put in a bit here about um, the Knights of Malta's uh, alliance with the French uh, aristocracy during the revolution, which yes. I didn't really read up much about. So they attempted to help um, Louis the Sixteenth escape mm-hmm. uh, from Versailles and to get him out of France so that he could go to Austria. But they were the plot was uncovered. He didn't manage to escape, obviously. Um, and then they were punished by the National Assembly and then the following governments. So who confiscated all of their land outside of Malta, mm. and then limited their activities quite a lot and took away all of their hospitals and priories and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, which basically meant that their income was cut by like a million percent, and then started taxing them, um, mm-hmm. which was also a problem because they had been exempted from taxes and now all of a sudden they had to pay 10% on a much smaller amount. And that is what made them so weak when they when it came to Napoleon. Right, excellent. Um, 
which basically happens in 1798 uh, when this is the fun siege. Of all the sieges, this is the fun one because Napoleon, who's just on his way to Egypt, he rocks up at Malta and requests safe harbour, a chance to resupply all his ships and gives, give his men a rest. Um, and as soon as he's inside uh, Valletta, he just attacks, puts it, holds everyone at gunpoint. Um, the knights severely weakened and uh, they just give up immediately. Um, which is also when I discovered that the head of the knights is called the Grand Master, which any organisation that's going to call their leader the Grand Master uh, can automatically do one, I think. It's just just deeply suspicious. Deeply, deeply right? suspicious. It's so close to great it's wizard. So close. <laughs> His full name is something really it is, long. It's uh, Grandmaster um, Ferdinand von Hemsuch zu Bolheim. Um, yeah, Fabulous. surrenders immediately, and then Napoleon settles in for a week. It's just June seventeen ninety eight. Napoleon just takes a week, sits down in Malta, and redoes everything. Uh, just like a lot of governance in six days. He, he does. It's like 168 like, yeah. things so that he, he does in a six-day period. He day creates <laughs> a new government commission. He abolishes feudal rights. He abolishes slavery, which means all of the Turkish and Jewish slaves on Malta at that point are just free now. He reorganizes it. This is the entire education system along his own principles, putting in place ideas mm-hmm. for primary and secondary schooling, Indu- introduces a judicial family code, he nominates judges, um, all in six days, and then he leaves a garrison behind to look after all and fucks off to Egypt. Um, but the French soldiers who are left just fuck everyone off immediately. They're very, very antagonistic to the church. <laughs> Malta is Catholic, and uh, so they do not get along. They also pillaged the churches um, to fund the war effort. So after a couple of months, the Maltese people rebel, um, and they look for support to the British, um, who are led by a guy called Alexander Ball, who becomes incredibly popular among the Maltese people. Um, so when the French uh, eventually surrender in 1800, the Maltese people, led by uh, Vincenzo Borg, write this letter to Alexander Ball saying, please, can we be British? Because <laughs> we don't want to be French and we don't want the knights. <laughs> yeah. um, that, because they're, not only did they, they never like the knights, but they'd also become very, very oppressive leaders uh over the time they've been in Malta. So the British seemed preferable. So basically Malta volunteers to be a British colony. Um, they Imagine how sucky life must be for a British <laughs> colony to sound better. Yeah. Yes. So they write their own declaration of rights which in which they agree to come under the sovereignty of the king, but they specify that if the British ever decide to withdraw their protection of Malta, then they can't pass it over to anyone else. It will revert to the Maltese people themselves. Um, so that is the beginning of Malta as a colony. Um, it's such a good thing that the British are so trustworthy. <laughs> I know. They're always going to know anything about their colonies, let alone help them out when they need it. <laughs> They'll like, give a fuck what their colonies want. Um, but Malta does become a really crucial part of the British Empire because of its location, particularly once the Suez Canal opens. Um because then it becomes a really important stop on the journey from Britain to India, which at this point obviously is a mess. It's like, you know, the the jewel in the crown of the British mm-hmm. Empire and what have you. 
Um, it's also during this time, uh, while it's a colony, that it gets to be live up to the knight's legacy a little bit because during World War One, it becomes kind of a hospital island. A lot of wounded soldiers are cared for on Malta um, to the extent that it becomes known as the nurse of the Mediterranean. Um, that's so nice. that's not that's a nice, pretty chill period, a fun wee siege with Napoleon, and then hanging out as a British colony for a while. And then I had to read so much about the siege <laughs> from World War II that lasted... Uh, oh my God, it's so, so much so World much War II. For, this siege lasted for two years. And it's so boring. But basic, So basically... <laughs> one of the books that I read had two chapters. It had one chapter on basically every period of um, like Maltese history, except for World War II, which had two chapters... Uh. It, I read an incredibly long, basically an essay paragraph about the sinking of one ship, uh, which I did yeah. not make any notes from because it was deeply boring. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> obviously being a British colony that is right under the toe of Italy um, is not a great position to be in <laughs> for World War Two if you're living on that particular island. Um Prior to the war, the British didn't want to put too many resources into the defence of Malta because they basically assumed that they wouldn't be able to defend it. So they would be better off using those resources somewhere else. Um, Whereas Mussolini had thought about it a lot and was he put together this whole plan. He knew how many men he was going to need. He was going to need 40,000 men. At this point, he expected that when, when war started, Spain, who at that point was under General Franco, would join the Axis powers and that they would take Gibraltar um, and that Italy would take Malta and basically the British would have no access to the Mediterranean at all. Um, Spain didn't mm-hmm. join the war, so that, that part didn't happen. And uh, Malta ended up taking Italy two years, after which point they failed. But uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> so basically... <laughs> yay! Um <laughs> So the British ahead of time were claiming that if they needed to defend Malta, they would just do it from Alexandria, uh, despite the fact that that was not a particularly good plan. And the Maltese people saw that it wasn't a very good plan and started to lose faith and confidence in uh, Britain as a protective force. Um, Mm -hmm. There were a lot of of debates about it with Britain and France. The French prime minister wanted to just actively concede Malta to Mussolini as an act of appeasement. Um, because appeasement had worked so well in the lead up. Um, yeah, yeah, great. great. I don't, if, if, if well, let's try, try again. Let's, <laughs> um, that's the rule. Churchill <laughs> refused to make any concessions to Italy. I mean, that's, he, that's the whole point of Churchill is that he wasn't going to be Chamberlain. So I don't know why anyone was surprised, but, um, yeah. despite the fact that he did not want to concede Malta, he was prioritizing the defense of the home islands. So Malta basically started out with 12 obsolete biplanes half of them weren't even ready to be used and one not yet completed airfield at Lucca there were others Mm -hmm. on the way but there weren't any the close they had was not finished and then once we hit 1940 in June of 1940 the North African campaign starts which is the point when Malta becomes really really important for the war because the British Navy and Air Force can use it to attack any Axis power ships that are trying to get supplies to the African front 
Um, so Mussolini enters the war on June 10th, 1940, and within hours, he is bombing Malta. Um, there's a record of at least one of the Royal Air Force gladiator biplanes taking, <laughs> attempting to fight against this attack, uh, but they don't really do any <laughs> any inroads, uh, which is not surprising. The the bombs at this point don't do a lot of damage because the point of them is to to demoralize the inhabitants of the island rather than cause significant damage. I assume because Italy wanted to use it. They wanted Malta for themselves as a, yeah. a station, so they didn't want to wreck it too much. Um, on the 19th of June, there are these 12 bombers that were in a battle in France that they lost, and so they flew off to escape. Um, and they arrive at a training base on Malta on, at Halfar. And that is where the beginning of the Maltese naval air squadron starts with these bombers. They're just sort mm-hmm. of scarpered from another battle. Um, but they do a really good job. By the end of the month, they have raided Sicily. They've sunk a destroyer. They've destroyed some tanks. They're doing doing all right. And that spurs on more aircraft to be sent into Malta um, and start taking down the Italian aircraft. Um which obviously impacted the Italian army's ability to send forces anywhere else. Um, well, anywhere. Yeah. Off over the sea. Over the sea. So the, I'm just scanning through my notes to see what's boring and what's worth talking about, basically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's just a lot of back and forth in and sieges. Yeah. And... Um, eventually Germany joins in, which is mainly because they want to take control of the oil fields in the Middle East and... Uh, yeah, oh, sure, why not? I guess get everyone involved. The oil, wanting oil is a big part of the whole Malta thing. There are various points when Italy doesn't have any oil and needs more and blah, blah, blah. And so, the po- yeah. Yeah, the oil stuff in World War II yes. is not talked about very much. But a lot of it is about, well, we need oil for the tanks and for the planes. Yeah. And- um, that also managed to drive back the British in the North African campaign, um, but was which was many lots of transport needed by sea so Malta was getting in the way um so what they did was put just like tens of thousands of naval mines around Malta with uh thousands more around Tunisia which basically stymied all any attempts to intercept ships so loads of supplies were able to get Mm -hmm. past because of the mines and then um German forces are have come down through Sicily, they're on the, the southern coast of Sicily, and they just bombast Malta with bombs, uh, c- targeting aircraft carriers uh, for the main part, but also uh, attacking the island as well, which drives civilians out of the cities um, because it's safer in the countryside with nothing to bomb. But there are no no shelters available, so uh, um, miners and stonemasons get asked by the British to build public shelters. Uh, but they're paid really badly, so they strike. Um, so <laughs> Maltese-British relationships are going real good at this point. Um, they're mm-hmm. ordered to resu- resume work on the shelters or face forced conscription into the army. Um, so they return to work, but they call for a go-slow, which is another um, labor organized labor tactic where you just basically work super slowly yeah. um, in an organized way, uh, which, cost, which ended up costing triple of what the... the shelters should have cost to build because of that um which is great we love a la- we love a labor movement more <laughs> love a labor movement in early 1941 the germans would withdraw because of commitments at the balkan campaign and also because of 
uh, some mishaps with paratroopers that make them a bit shy about using paratroopers. Um, so the Allied... <laughs> this is how I talk about war. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it's fair. Yeah. So in the months after that, the Allied forces uh, build up build up a lot in the area and start launching their own offensives rather than just defending from Axis attacks. They sink loads and loads of ships, um, but that comes at a heavy cost because in order to bomb accurately, and I don't understand the mechanics of it, but basically you can either throw bombs hither and thither randomly and get away, or you can <laughs> bomb an actual ship and probably get shot down by anti-aircraft guns and they prioritize bombing actual ships so they lose a lot of planes to anti-aircraft guns they start losing carriers to u-boats in december uh so they stop using any surface ships at all for a while in 1942 germany comes back in full force with the hitler and Mussolini have drawn up a whole invasion plan to take take malta completely but then hitler pulls out partly because at that point, he's secured uh, alternate supply lines to Africa, so Malta's not as important anymore. Uh, but also, again, super super shy about using paratroopers because they've had some bad times with that in the past. Um, <laughs> yep. So then, basically, the spring of 1942 was just uh, the Allies trying to build up their air force in the area to get superiority over the Axis forces, which they eventually do in May. Um but by this point, the situation on Maltor is real grim because there's food and water shortages. A lot of infrastructure has been damaged, so there's no sanitation. Like there are, pi- excuse me, there are pipes that have been damaged, and uh, there's lo- loads of disease and bad nutrition, and it's not not very fun at all. Um, and the Axis forces start to ramp up their offensive again, but they ultimately fail. Like they build up really, really strong and they still still can't overcome the Allied defences. And so October nineteen forty two they um they make their last attempt uh, at an offensive and then they back off. And they have basically their campaign to take the siege has cost them so severely in air support that it really impacts their performance on the front lines of the war. Which is good. I mean I guess Malta kept them distracted for so long that they were weaker in general. Um, but it also yeah, seems like useful. a whole lot of horrible battle <laughs> that changed very little. Yeah, it sounds like a real shit time, to be perfectly it honest. It doesn't sound yeah. fun. Um, and I, it really yeah. damages... The whole war, in general, really damages Malta's relationship with Britain. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's a pretty... It's not, it's not a small reason for them seeking independence um, after yeah. the war. I suspect... Like, this is the whole thing with having a colony. It feels like you have to look after them if you're going to, like, show... The benefit of being in an empire is that if someone comes and tries to fuck with mm-hmm. you, then the big empire force comes to protect yeah. you. And if the big empire force is just like, yeah, Which... Um, yeah. Then that kind of... I mean, that's what kills the British they empire. Love, they simply <laughs> love to come calling when they are in a war and they need more forces. But when you yeah. are attacked, they're not so hot. Also, just no one no one knows anything about you. As someone from a colony, no one knows anything about you. And you know everything about them and it's just not very fair. I mean, I live in Northern Ireland, which isn't even a colony. It's just technically part of Great Britain. And yep. no one knows, knows anything about us. And yet, for some reason, everything that happens in England is described as national yep. news. Um and so I know lots about what's happening in like Manchester 
Um, and a lar- members of my family still think that I live in a foreign country. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Despite my repeated efforts to persuade her that I yeah. do not. Um, don't God bless don't colonise places in the first place. But don't colonise I mean, them and feels... then ignore them. At the very least, if you're going to colonise someone, I feel like you have to make them feel special. And this is this is something that the British never yeah. do, is that they colonise places and then are like, oh, well, obviously you're shit and we hate yeah. you. Um, but we're very important. Yeah. Uh, and really, they should... If they buffed their egos a lot more, then I think everyone would be a lot happier. I do feel like I should say, I do not think that um, no one knowing anything about New Zealand is the worst aspect of colonisation by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just on a list. It's a long list. It's just list. a little bit of salt it's in It's one the, of the things. Yeah. It's just annoying. It's very annoying. Um, uh, but yeah, that's but yeah, that's basically Malta. <laughs> It's yeah, and now Malta is independent. Mm-hmm. Um, put in and a has... great entry for Eurovision this year. Did put in a very good entry for Eurovision this year. Um, these days, the language is Maltese, but English is the second language. Mm. Um, and um, as far as I can tell from our Maltese listeners, um, is a language that they happily speak. Um, as a second or um, kind of co-mother mm-hmm. tongue. Um, and um, it is incredibly beautiful and it's full of really beautiful ancient things. Yeah, I definitely want to go there. It seems um, This did make me kind of want to yeah. go there um, and look at stuff because there's lots... I mean, if you love a fort, there's loads of forts. Yeah. Um, but if you love a temple, there's lots of temples and it also looks like great beaches. Yeah, it seems chill as hell. And they do a banging pop yeah. song, which is the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> for most places. And it has Roman stuff, and I love a Roman yeah. stuff. The question is, did Malta have a massive um, impact on global history? And the answer is probably yes, just because of where yeah. it is. The interesting thing about all of this stuff, to me, like when you're reading about it and when you're talking about it and when we've been talking about it for like an hour, um, is... None of, nothing talks about the people of Malta. It talks about invaders and, um, like, invading forces who remain separate from the people of yeah. Malta. Like, um, and um, the Maltese people get conscripted into stuff. Um, and that Maltese people is obviously a mixture of all of the people who have invaded them, much like England is a mixture of all the people who have invaded us over the yeah. millennia. Um, but no one ever talks about the Maltese, like, like there's no great Maltese heroes in any of these stories. Yeah. <laughs> Just the only people, like, names that you get are, um, invader yeah. names. There's, there's the and one, I think that that is a function. The rebellion against the French where it's led by Maltese yeah. people, but that's kind of the one time. Which doesn't, which uh, yeah, fair. there's... I think that this is because so much of the history that's been written and like is just about invading forces, battles and sieges. And this is a problem with military history taking over everything and people thinking that military history is the most important thing. Um, And I'm sure that there are millions of stories of um, Maltese people doing cool stuff in Malta 
um, or Maltese people leaving Malta and doing cool stuff and art and whatever. So if anybody has any cool Maltese people um, that you would like us to know about, then please tell us uh, and we will um, tell people about them because uh, I feel like Malta probably deserves to be known better um, as a cool place. One day I will go there. Um, a TV show that I worked on is filming there, and I was like, "Oh, maybe they'll, maybe they'll just desperately need their historical consultant on, <laughs> on site." <laughs> Unfortunately, oh, no. Um, I know, but um, but yeah, uh, because it has loads of cool forts which are in place. Yeah, maybe we'll do a, we'll, a, an uh, official history sixty trip. We'll go on an official um, research trip slash holiday to yeah. Malta. Sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah, it sounds it um, sounds great. It's just started raining really hard here, so that's really um, really sold on the idea of going to the Mediterranean. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Janina, what is our question our for next question time? For next time, this is asked by uh, Lioness Fe- Feather. Lioness Feather. Lioness Feather. Um, yeah. So it was dropped down a line in a weird place, which is why that was confusing. <laughs> um, who asks? Can you please talk about Arabic and Baghdad libraries? Which yeah. yeah sounds a lot less military than this one, so I'm excited. It's going to be the opposite. Well, there's going to probably be some military stuff because they all get burnt down. But um, <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about Baghdad and Timbuktu and great Arabic literature and um, the Arabic Middle Ages. It's going to be great. It's really exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to find out how many people don't know that Timbuktu is a real place. <laughs> All right, Janina, where can you find us? You can find us at history60.com, where you can find links to our Twitter. You can ask us questions that you would like us to research on there. You can support us either one-off or monthly um, there, or we'll link to our Ko-fi where you can do either of those things. And you can buy some merch, which I feel like we maybe we should change up. Maybe we'll change up the merch. We should change yeah. up the match. So we're going to change up the match. And We've only so, got a limited um, amount of store space. So um, I guess that means that everything in there is always limited run. It is. So we can we, we will change it up and see what um, new and exciting things we can yeah. come up with. Uh, uh, but uh, somebody um, tweeted us from Australia or Instagram messaged me from Australia to say that her t-shirts had arrived. So you, no matter where you are in the world, you can... Yeah. Um, purchase and they're good. I've got, um, I've got a couple have... so far, and I'm, like they're, they're nice. They're nice t-shirts. Yeah, they are. I have some yeah, on the way. Very cool. Um, and we have three new people who are supporting us monthly now. We have Scott Deardorf, Heinrich Stefan Prokop, and Ida. Thank you so much. So, oh, oh, and Vanessa Ness. Ah. Thank you very much. Um, for your support, it is all very helpful and means that we don't have to panic when it comes time to pay for all the things that need paying yeah, for it's very um, very good thank you so much and yeah we appreciate you very much and we appreciate everyone who just buys us a coffee yeah. as well so um thank you yeah. very much and until next time um bye, bye.